Welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast, all about our food systems and how we fit into them. I'm Liz Reitzig, and we have the unique and wonderful Rachel Mills with us as well. Hello, nice to be with you again. As a reminder, Rachel's area of expertise is the economy and economics. She dives way deep into the economic side of things like I do on the food side of things. And it's amazing to have the two perspectives and how they complement each other so we can see how our decisions impact these two systems. Yep. I've been working on the precious metal side and alternate currencies and stuff like that. How to shore up your portfolio and reserve your wealth with precious metals and things like that. So, um, yeah, but I'm always eager to learn what Liz teaches me and us about food. And like last week, last week, did, wasn't it last week we talked about fermented vegetables? I got yes. some fermented vegetables. Like I was, I, I was too intimidated to make it myself, even though you described how stupidly easy it is. I still, I wanted to get like a real jar so I know how it's supposed to taste, <laughs> so I can tell if I'm doing it right. Yeah. Um, and it's tangy. It's like pickles. It's like uh, like sauerkraut. Um, I got some at a health food store. It's really, really good. And I just mixed it in with a salad. And um, next, I will save that jar and make my own. Real world solutions. Awesome. Yeah. Now, we have a really important topic today, which is the recent history of raw milk. We've covered, Rachel, in the past, we've covered the longer history of raw milk, or shall I say the further back history. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a four-part series about this on my Substack recently. So I'll put that in the uh, show notes in a link. You can also find that under Raw Milk Mama on Substack. That's M-A-M-A, Raw Milk Mama. But Rachel, before we dive too much into that topic, We have a really quick personal update that you want to share and that I'm also really excited about and and happy to share this news on the podcast. I have another podcast. (laughs) It's my son's podcast, actually. Um, He recently got placed in a different classroom with a different teacher because he was having problems at the old one, which we won't get into. But anyway, positive development in my fifth grade son's life. And uh, his teacher requires him to read 30 minutes a day. So I thought, my son, Wiley, I, I love him dearly, but the only way to make sure that he actually reads and doesn't stare off into space for 30 minutes is to have him read out loud and sit on him. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well make a podcast out of it. <laughs> so we have a new podcast called Wiley Reads. It is on Spotify and it is on iTunes. If you want to look it up, um, we started off with The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, which is a very, very dark tale. It's not the Disney version, but it follows closely. We've been having a lot of fun with it. And we just started Tom Sawyer. So we're four episodes in and it would mean so, so much to my son, Wiley, if you would search it up and subscribe and give it a listen. And if you have a budding reader, a young reader, you can follow along. We're always going to do... like stuff in the public domain that you can download for free if if you want to read along and I make some comments here and there and we're just having a lot of fun with it. So it's called Wiley Reads. 
That's wonderful. And I'll see how I can link to that. I think I can just directly link to it. So please Thanks. give Wiley some of your time and attention, especially if you have young people also who like listening to reading. I know that we will be listening to these stories because it's always nice to have that content read aloud. Yeah. All right. And without further ado, so raw milk, hot topic. Yeah. And we've gone over the long ago history of raw milk. And especially recently, I wrote this four-part series on it covering the ancient history of raw milk. And then what happened in the U.S. with our whiskey, war, and raw milk? How do these three things relate to each other to create the environment we had that compelled mandatory pasteurization? Whiskey, war, and raw milk? Yes. How do these relate to each other? I don't even know. I'm going to have to read your series. Well, yes. And very briefly, spoiler alert, if anybody wants to wait and read it, don't listen to the next two minutes, but uh, very briefly, Rachel, uh, after the Revolutionary War, there were high taxes put on to imported liquor to pay for the war, right? This was part of Hamilton's idea. Whiskey tax, brilliant. Okay. Yes. And how do Americans like taxes? They don't. They don't. So the American farmers said, we'll make the liquor. And they did. And they made a lot of it. And what happens when you're making whiskey is you get all of this waste product, the spent grain from making whiskey, which is typically corn. And they're like, we have all of this waste product. What do we do with it? And the some, cows. well, some unscrupulous investors said, well, we'll feed it to, to the cows. But of course, transportation was a major issue then. So they built the dairies right next to the distilleries. And it was just basically a flow. This, this distillery slap right into the dairies. And these cows, Rachel, this is not how our creator designed life for cows. It's not good food for cows. Not good food for cows. Okay. Oh, it was uh, dreadful, dreadful circumstances for them. And for the people who got the milk that these animals provided, it was not clean, healthy milk that we look at and we say, this is what we want to feed our families. Also at the time in the cities, the infant mortality rate was unacceptably high, terrifyingly high. Yes. So what happened from that was a campaign. There was actually two separate campaigns. One was for certified clean raw milk from outlying farms. The other was for com compulsory pasteurization. So- we all know what we have available to us today. So we know who won that particular argument, but it's very interesting to look at the intricacies of how a wealthy philanthropist influenced that campaign and also the use of propaganda. Uh -huh. This was of course, shortly after Edward Bernays wrote his book, Propaganda in 1928. Yeah. So if you're curious about that long ago history, be sure to check out that four-part series. I did record all of them. So if you prefer the audio version, it's available to you. Nice. And that will shed some light as to the, the modern political developments on raw milk. Like how did it actually happen to be 
that we live in an era where we cannot easily access this life-sustaining food. Okay. But for today, Rachel, we're going to talk a little bit about the past 20 years of history of raw milk in the U.S. And specifically, our stories and our involvement in that. The Rachel and Liz story. Yes. We met. The origin story. <laughs> so... I think it was about 2005, I started working on the political side, the policy side of food access and a lot revolving around raw dairy. And of course, our favorite statesman, who is all about freedom, Dr. Ron Paul, he was in Congress at that time and he really championed these efforts. So I worked closely with his office on legislation, policy, what would something look like? How can we properly advocate for something for these changes to occur? And as most of these listeners will know, Ron Paul championed the original raw milk legislation in Congress to remove the ban on interstate transportation. Well, in 2007, Ron Paul ran for president. And that's where I first encountered you, Rachel. You made a funny and and wonderfully um, true fan video about Dr. Paul. I did. That was when YouTube was kind of, well, it was newer than it is today. Yeah. (laughs) Back then, 100,000 views was a lot. (laughs) And that video, it was just a rant, really. It was just me. At the time, I was kind of a disaffected libertarian, kind of discouraged. And then I came across Ron Paul, and I couldn't believe that he was doing so well in debates, and he was gaining some traction, and people were actually listening to him. And for me, it gave me hope. It was like, oh my goodness, this is resonating with more people than just me. This is exciting. And I was excited, so I made this video. And it made its way to Ron Paul's uh, staff, and they happened to be looking for a communications person. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I was hired. <laughs> <laughs> and, and wonderfully so, right? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. I worked on, the, um, cap- on Capitol Hill in his congressional office for five years until he retired um, in 2013. Uh, so that was amazing. And it was because of that, that we got to meet because I was working with his congressional office on a continual basis on the changes that we wanted to see on the national level. So I got to meet you and we got started talking Mm -hmm. and we were talking about raw milk, other food issues, the impact. Of course, we both had a um, personal choice perspective on this. And I would, I remember I would constantly tell you about how great raw milk is too, and how beneficial it is. But more importantly than that, we both have this fundamental and guiding value that we should be able to choose the foods we want for our families and that the government does not belong in those personal decisions. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's always been a challenge to source a a a good, reliable source of raw milk. But um, I was very excited when I got here to St. Augustine and found the farmer's market where it's just, it's just there. 
it's labeled as pet food, but it's there um, for you to choose. And exactly. because of my friend, Liz Reitzig, <laughs> I was like, oh, I want some of that. So yeah, when, when I met you back in 2008, um, I didn't know anything about raw milk. I was like, raw? why would somebody want unpasteurized milk? And you educated me and I learned a lot from you. I continue to learn a lot from you all the time about uh, just more natural, more healthy foods. So our friendship has been beneficial to me in many ways. Likewise, Rachel. I always learn politics and PR from you as well. And the economic side of things that, you know, I look into somewhat, but you always give me a different depth of it. And so with Ron Paul there and covering this on the campaign trail, I know you have a lot of stories about how that happened because there was, there was several times where Dr. Paul would be on the campaign trail and at huge events, right? One of the things that was always beautiful is how many people he attracted to his events and how many young people. Yes. And you had a special role in that as press secretary. You had a special role in some of the talking points brought up at that time. Yeah. Well, the, the main thing that I did, well, one of the main things I, I did a lot of uh, handling press calls and scheduling and writing statements and press releases and stuff like that. But one thing that I did um, habitually on a you know routine base basis was I, I wrote the Texas Straight Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, 99% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, I would uh, come up with a topic, write the weekly column, put it out there, and he would read it. He would he would you know make sure that it's it's what he would say and how he would say it, but. Um, I would take care of that piece for him so he could focus on other things. Um, and I got pretty good at writing in his voice. And so frequently we would we would write a, a column about raw milk. Um, and I would work with his legislative aide who was, I mean, you worked very closely with with Daniel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and he was very knowledgeable and, you know, he would help me come up with talking points and, you know, work it into a column and, you know, that would make its way out there. and you know, so that column was widely read, I would say, and, and circulated. And so in that way, we also brought attention to the, to the issue and talked about it, just brought it into the conversation. So I was happy to do that. Well, I love how the relationships we built over those years created that synergy where we could have this become a national talking point. Right. And of course, Dr. Paul was always and remains a champion for individual freedoms. Yeah. It's just like that, like raw milk. It's not something that was just controversial or widely discussed. It's not something that makes headlines on the news or anything. It's not like in the news cycle day to day. Like, and no one else on Capitol Hill was really talking about it. So it wasn't like he was you know, tacking onto the news cycle to get attention. He was bringing it to the news cycle in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it took all of that behind the scenes effort and work for that to happen. Yeah. And Rachel, right around that same time too, raw milk was 
in the headlines, or maybe it was just shortly after because of the aggressive raids the FDA was conducting against some of the farms. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that too? Yeah, I, I remember um, some of the farmers. I remember uh, we would have some of the farmers actually come to our office and we yeah. get to meet them. And yeah. that was always fascinating. Yep. Yep. I I spearheaded a lot of those efforts. We would have the, the national days where we would come in and bring the farmers and have them advocate on the Hill. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really important to do that. I don't know how easy that is lately with the fencing around the Capitol Hill. And, you know, ever since January 6th, they've made it more complicated. I I haven't been back to the Hill in in many years, but it, it used to be I, I mean, I, I just, I loved how accessible it was. Yeah. You could just walk in, you go through a metal detector, whatever, but you just walk in and you go talk to your representative, you yeah. know, and that, and that's available to citizens. I mean, you schedule ahead, but. Yeah, you schedule ahead for, for you know, maximum impact. But I mean, you talk to a staffer, but that staffer has the ear of the congressman and they can bring attention to your issue or write about it. Like, Exactly. When, yeah. When you the, talk the, to me, I, I was the mouthpiece of of Ron Paul in in many instances. So, I mean, I don't talk about issues that he doesn't care about, but right. you know, the staff, it, it's all one team. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Just those were happy days. It was it was fun feeling like I was making a difference. <laughs> well, Rachel, I mean, I I have to believe that we really were and that we continue to. I have to believe yeah. that we, as a citizen, ba- uh, how to put it, as the citizens here, we have the ability and the strength to make changes. And sometimes those changes are so small, you can hardly see them, but we do have the ability to have impact. And we must, we must use our voices to have that yeah. impact. And continue yeah. to, right? And, and yeah, I mean, things feel a little bit messier today than they did ten years ago, fifteen years ago. But we still have that same, most of that same access. Yeah. Someone once told me um, politics belongs to those who show up, and that yeah. really, really rang true on the hill because you know a lot of people will rant and have opinions about politics. A lot of people will vote, but a smaller subset will actually write in, a smaller subset will call, and a very small subset will actually show up and be a body in the office of their representative. And those people, like, they they get the attention. Like, these people show up, this is what they want. You know, when, when you actually go to the trouble of meeting with that legislative staffer or the congressman, if you're if if you are lucky with the scheduling, I mean that it, it's impactful. It may yeah. not feel like it at the time, but you know if they've got a lot of people streaming into their office for one issue, you know yep. it like it makes it a huge difference. So and I I think the same thing is true at the state level too. So. If you've got <clears throat> passion for an issue, show up, you know, 
Yes, right. Politely and respectfully. (laughs) Show up politely and respectfully. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't don't make yourself a nuisance. You know, bring cookies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, probably not because metaphorically. Metaphorically, yes. (laughs) Bring cookies. Metaphorical cookies. I have found that to be very true. Every single time it's worth the effort to show up politely and respectfully. I mean, nobody like think about the listening that would not occur if you show up angry and just ready to yell at somebody versus show up with a a legitimate polite request Mm -hmm. and you will be heard. You might not get your request. You might not get it in a five-year period, but keep showing up. Because the other side is probably showing up too. Just keep Guaranteed that in mind. they are. <laughs> yeah. The other side, they probably have more money and highly paid lobbyists. <laughs> but yeah. there's there's something about a highly paid lobbyist. Like they know, the staffers they do. know. Mm-hmm. Um, versus like citizens showing up because of, it's an issue that they care about and they're coming to give their side of the story. So yeah. hugely impactful. Well, and Rachel, as we always say, or... As I've heard many times in politics, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Yes, yes, yes. So one of those ways is through policy or legislative change. Those are actually two ways. And another way is through changing public perceptions of an issue. And I find that that is maybe even more important because if you just go in and change a policy without building that foundation, somebody else comes in behind you and changes back because you haven't built the foundational values or the foundational reasons of why that policy needs to change. So I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, changing the uh, cultural milieu first. Yeah, yeah. Before putting all that energy and effort or simultaneously while putting that energy and effort into the legislative or policy change. Yeah, and you you really can't do a, a policy change without the support of the people. That's right. maybe the beauty of our system is you, you've got to educate the people first because the law follows the people. You know, if, if there's exactly. a public, public groundswell for something, then the law follows that. It does not lead. <laughs> it, at least it's very bad at leading because if the people are not behind it, they're not going to. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So, well, and and that brings me to, you know, looking again at those years that the FDA was so aggressively enforcing against small farmers. And what what did that do? And remember that we had that event on the lawn of the Capitol where I actually milked a cow on the lawn of the Capitol. That was fantastic. And we had a big rally and we were celebrating what our our cow friends do for us. And that was a wonderful event. And it really showcased how you can shift gently and slightly shift people's perceptions of an issue mm-hmm. through the use of um, our, our larger media circles, shall we say. Yeah, that, that was just brilliant media. <laughs> it was great. It worked. It had a lot of people asking questions. It, it brought yeah. awareness to this obscure issue. And there was another event that I spearheaded that was actually uh, right around the same time because I remember my youngest was a, a small baby. So it was in 2011 and we did the milk and cookies outside of the FDA headquarters. And what we did was uh, we, we modeled it on 
um, the Freedom Riders of the 60s, when I became aware of that episode of history, it was so inspiring to me. It was when uh, people got boarded the buses in one of the Northern states when buses were still segregated and they rode the buses down into the South. And literally that was such a violent time in our history and such a horrible um, scenario, the whole thing was. And what these people, most of them young, what they did was so brave and so inspiring. They got on these buses knowing that they were most likely going to get beat up and thrown in jail and they did it anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the strength and the strength of character that they had. I mean, if you have a chance to go watch an episode on the freedom riders of the sixties, do it, but their actions and their courage inspired me. And I saw this as an example that we could follow to protest a law that said you can't go across state lines with raw milk. And so I gathered up a bunch of mamas, <laughs> a bunch of raw milk mamas. And we did, we, we, we crossed state lines with raw milk, telling the FDA, we are bringing raw milk to your front door and we're going to share milk and cookies with you because we want to show you that there's another way to do this. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to all be criminals. Like the way that they had written the regulation, if I go to Tennessee or Virginia and get a gallon of milk and I bring it home and put it in my fridge, they have just criminalized me. It's so broad, so broad, right? And so what we got in response to that particular event is the FDA made a statement, a written statement saying they did not intend and nor were they going to enforce against consumers, right? That leaves the doors wide open for other types of enforcement, but it did clarify that they're not going to criminalize people, normal everyday people for getting groceries. It's it's for big operations. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's yeah. Really I mean, cool. it, it, it was a very interesting event, the preparation for it and the, um, the day of, of course, we show up a bunch of mamas in our minivans at the FDA and there's just, it's just crawling with law enforcement everywhere. We had Homeland Security, we had state, and some of them were there legitimately to make sure that uh, we had space and didn't traffic, you know, all, all the things they do because we have a right to protest in this country. Yeah, And that means that sometimes roads get closed. We didn't have a road closed, but there was all of these enforcement there. And I genuinely think that they enjoyed the event also. <laughs> there were more smiles. There were more yeah. smiles than frowns. Yeah. Um, and it was all done with such joy and love and yeah. inclusion. Yeah. Milk and cookies at the FDA. Win them over with milk and cookies, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and there are ways uh, where you can call attention to laws that shouldn't be there or law ways to enforce the law that shouldn't be done. And this makes me think of jury nullification. Um, just if I can do a quick aside. Yeah. Um, jury nullification is something that your audience should know about if they don't already. It's the entire purpose of the jury system is so that the law can be judged against common sense. Common sense of 
you know, the average citizen without a law degree, does this law make sense? Does this enforcement make sense to the average person? And the last time I got called to jury duty, I had small kids, and the judge told us all as jurors and said, will you judge this case according to the law as I tell you, as I give it to you? And everyone said, yes, yes, yes. And I said, no, no, I'm sorry, Your Honor, but that's not my job as a juror. My job as a juror is not to be your rubber stamp. He didn't like that and he dismissed me. Um, and I was okay with that because I had, you know, little kids. <laughs> yeah. Everyone will try to tell you, how do you get out of jury duty? Well, that's how. You, yeah. you just stay loud and proud um, during nullification. But, you know, he, he asked me to clarify and I was able to say in the courtroom in front of all of those people, I said, jury nullification is a sacred right in this country, and it's how the North became a free, became free and abolitionist um, versus the South, is because jurors in the North uh, started practicing jury nullification. They would not prosecute and return escaped slaves back to their um, masters in the South, and so prosecutors stopped bringing those cases because it, it was going to be another loss. And they knew that because no jury in the North was going to enforce that law. That is part of how the North became free. It wasn't through the legislative process so much as it started with the people and the jury system. So um, I would just want to encourage people to, to understand that. And the judges don't like, and, and the legal system with all of their degrees and their education and their uh, consultants, they don't like the idea of wildcard jurors. Mm -hmm. They want to know exactly how you're going to decide the case and exactly what you're going to do. And they want to tell you that up front. But you have to remember the entire point is common sense. And to just throw out all of that legal mumbo jumbo and just remember that you're a normal citizen. Does, does, is this person, did they do something that is criminal and it should it be criminal? So if you were a, a juror on a raw milk case, for example, and you were sitting in judgment of a farmer, the judge can tell you this is the law and this is how you have to decide, but it is your right as a juror to say that's, that shouldn't be the law. And I don't think it is a fair application of the law. And I refuse to, to uh, convict this person. You can do that as a juror. So, um, and it, how, you, how you handle that when the judge is asking you up front if you're gonna be seated on the jury, are you, are you gonna um, rule the way I tell you? Um, because if you're, if you're loud and proud about it, like I was, it's a very quick dismissal. Do you want that or not? Um, or, or do you try to be cagey about it so that you can get seated? You know, and I'll leave that up to people to decide. But <laughs> for me, I was like, you know, it, it was a win-win either way. If, if, if I get seated on the jury, great. I would love to do jury duty. But if I get sent home, then that's probably better for my family situation. So anyway, thank you for that little aside. No, I loved it, Rachel. And I did not know that about the North. I love that. And, and that just shows the power of not enforcing really awful laws. Mm -hmm. So I'm also really glad you brought up that particular point of the power of the jury, because 
We're not going to get into it today. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be next week because it needs its own individual podcast. We're actually going to talk about the trial of a farmer. And that would be Vernon Hirschberger. And 10 years ago today, I was getting ready for pretrial hearings for this farmer for a trial I, in, scheduled in May. So I don't want to get into it. We're going to talk yeah, all about it next week and all the juicy details. And I, I don't, I don't really know anything about this trial. So I'm anxious to learn next week when we talk. Perfect. But I'm really glad you mentioned that about the role of the jury and the um, it's, it's literally written into our structure, our governance structure, that vital role of the juror. And that's the single vote that counts the most. Yes. Right? When we think about voting in elections, we know that often our single vote does not make a big impact. <laughs> but when you are voting amongst 12 people on a jury trial, your vote makes a huge difference. Yeah, you can hang that jury, just one person in, in some cases. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, why, why would we have a jury system if it's up to the judge? Why, well, why would we bother? It is one of the fundamental distinctions of our country, the, way, the governance structure of our country. Yeah. But thanks for shedding light on the Northern situation. I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more just for personal curiosity, because that's yeah. so fascinating. I mean, it's, it's more complex than that, but that was definitely a factor is the, the people and popular opinion was against slavery, you know, yep. Yep. fundamentally. And so when you got seated on a, a jury, it was morally repugnant to you to um yep. convict an escaped slave yeah like you, you you just couldn't do it and and every juror has uh that right to follow their conscience even when it's in conflict with the law as written as the judge tells you say no this is this is a this is a bad law I will not convict under it even if they're totally guilty you still don't have to convict well, I think we will get a lot more into those details next week, but this has been great coverage. I want to mention a couple more points about the recent history of raw milk. And that by that, I mean, about the past 20 years, uh, about um, 12 years ago now, 14 to 13 to 12 years ago, uh, Kristen Canty made a wonderful movie called Farmageddon. Yes. And this movie essentially documented several of the uh, aggressive tactics against several types of food producers. It wasn't just raw milk, it was several types. And it's well worth a watch finding it somewhere. I think it, it was on Netflix for a long time. I'm not sure if it still is, but it's well worth watching to get some of that background of where are we today and how did we get here? Yeah. Cool. And what still needs to change, right? Yeah. Now we have a couple more people in Congress, including Dr. Rand Paul in the Senate, 
and Thomas Massey and Thomas Massey and Representative Shelley Pingree. I mean, she is very significant and, and it's it's not just significant because she's also a farmer in Congress, but it, it shows the the bipartisan support, strong bipartisan support for farming issues, for direct access issues. Oh, that's that awesome. Not, I, I, I've never heard of her. What state is she? Yeah. Maine. <laughs> She's like, I mean, I, I cannot imagine how cold it must get there. Uh, she's in the, I think the most Northern part of Maine and, ooh, and she's a farmer there. I mean, I, I have so much admiration for all of our farmers, but the ones in the Northern places, I'm like, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't know how oh, they do it. This, it gets so cold there. Um, but this, this shows that on such a fundamental level, the farming issues, the food access issues are such human issues. They're not partisan. Yeah. And bringing these points back to the level of community, back to the level of neighbor to neighbor, that's vital because that's really how we function. It's how we connect. It's how we function within communities. My next house, I'm not going to have an HOA. <laughs> <laughs> you got me already like shot because I, I made I made another post on the neighborhood uh, Facebook group and said, okay, egg prices are what they are. How do, do we feel any different about backyard chickens? And uh, I kind of got nowhere. And I'm like, ah. So I knew that living in an HOA would be frustrating. I knew that it would be. And I'm just about... I'm um, I'm looking forward to someday when I can get a little homestead. Yeah, I get it, and and we also really all. And I say when I say we, I mean we collectively, community members throughout this amazing country of ours. That we need to examine our priorities, and we need to look very seriously at food security on the hyper local level. Food yeah. and water. Food and, and I can water. I can I can imagine circumstances in which the neighborhood would change their mind about backyard chickens and access to eggs and you know allowing more of that kind of thing. But I I just wonder if it gets to that point, is it already too late? You know, or do people change their mind or see where it's going and and relax their restrictions? and allow more freedom, you know, but before it's too late. Yep. Small steps, building awareness, changing the overall perception of things, right? Yeah. If it suddenly becomes, I mean, right now, when you think about our status symbols of cars and big houses and whatever other status symbols people use, which there's so many in different subcultures, if we change those status symbols through just popularity, right? Or yeah. keeping on being loud about it, yeah. then, then I mean, those that symbology, so to speak, has enormous influence. And also, Rachel, I, I really think that part of it too is simply showing people through visioning what this could look like. What would it actually look like if we had managed food forests 
or managed permaculture areas within each community. And the thing is, and people um, could embrace that. On the HOA uh, neighborhood page, the the objection was the smell. Like the neighbors talked about, you know, oh, because of the smell, they didn't want this in our neighborhood. I'm like, I had backyard chickens for years back in North Carolina, and you have to get your nose right up in the coop for, for the smell to bother you. You know, if, if you maintain that coop with the pine shavings or whatever, you, you know, it, if 10 feet away, it doesn't smell like anything, you know, and plus we have ducks and um, geese and all kinds of fowl already roaming the neighborhood in the wild. You know, if we can deal with that. And it's not like every neighbor would want backyard chickens. If you don't want them, right. don't get them. And, right. you know, make some kind of uh, rule where you have to put them behind a privacy fence or something. So the the look of it doesn't bother anybody. But I mean, I guess the other legitimate concern might be that it would atta- attract predators. But we have ducks already. You know, what are you going to do about the ducks? You know, if predators are... Um, in a stasis level, like yeah. we, we don't care about the predators that are chasing our ducks around. You mean non-domesticated ducks? Yeah. Wild just ducks that just wild, wild ducks. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They just, they just kind of roam the neighborhood. It's very yep. adorable. Like when we, looked at this, <laughs> when we looked at this house, there was actually a duck that had um, a clutch of eggs and it was sitting on them in, in our front yard. Aww. Not in the yard, like up next to the house. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, with like 13 eggs and she was sitting on them. And the little girl that lived here before, she was like feeding, she like brought like bread and stuff to feed the mama duck so she wouldn't get hungry. I mean, like we we already have like egg operations and you know, it's just that they don't benefit people as far as like, I can't eat those eggs. Right. (laughs) You know, so like we already have that, but it's just in the wild and it's not sanctioned. But if you do it yeah. like officially, like for eggs and meat production, and you're in trouble with the HOA. So to me, it doesn't make sense. But to them, they they have their mindset. And I mean, that will have to change for it's, it to change. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that it's going to, because even if people don't have it as a priority now, food prices are changing dramatically and that food access is changing. And it's, it's kind of shocking. You know, I talk to people consistently who work in the food scarcity space and it's skyrocketing. It's skyrocketing within neighborhoods where you would not expect it. And the question I keep coming back to is at what point do we collectively shift our priorities? Yeah. And I think to some extent, there's so many people who perceive that they don't have access to land or they perceive that it's an impossibility or they simply don't see it as a possibility or a priority. Yeah. Yeah. And conversations shift that talking about it shifts it, creating that vision shifts it because it plants those ideas in more people's minds that, oh, well, yeah, we could live in a neighborhood food forest. We could have 
the people who want to be raising chickens, raising chickens for community food security. Not everybody wants to, but plenty of people do. And some people want fruit trees in their backyard. Exactly. That's allowed. There's no restrictions on, you know, if if I want to plant. And I do plan to um, get some orange trees and peach trees and things like that. But I mean, some people could have fruit trees and then some people have backyard eggs and we trade. Exactly. And some people grow squashes and some people grow green beans or grow a diversity of things and trade for those things. Mm -hmm. It can all work. Yeah. We can can have community food security. Yeah. We have to want it. We have to want it. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe we have to not worry so much about smells. (laughs) Maybe we need to not be so sensitive. I mean, the other thing is that the, the things that smell on an industrial level do not smell on a very small scale. Exactly. That's what I think they had in their mind, like that there's going to be a a 1000 chicken operation set up in somebody's backyard. And that's just not going to happen. Someone's going to have five birds. Exactly. And and it's going to be fine. (laughs) Yeah. You won't even notice it. Yep. Yeah. Well, I am really excited to next week cover the Vernon Hirschberger story. And everything that happened leading up to that trial and in that trial was very interesting episode, shall we say. So we are going to talk about that next week. Be sure to tune in for that. And until then, Rachel. And look up Wiley Reads. Do it for me. I will put that link in the notes. And for this week, Eat for Health. Know your neighbor and grow some food.